What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about how to make a living in the board game space, in the industry, how to go pro, but how to do it by doing more than just game design. I feel like in the world we live in at the moment, if you're only going to design games and then pitch those to publishers, it's going to be very, very difficult, very challenging to make a full-time living, especially if you have kids and a spouse and hobbies and a mortgage and things like that. And so what does it look like to diversify your opportunities to do some game design, maybe do some publishing, maybe do some consulting and development work? Like what are the different angles you can come at it? Maybe maybe other creative things, writing books, courses, different things like that. And so I'm talking to Joe Slack and he's a guy that's been doing a lot of those things. He and I both have been you know, doing our best to diversify our income through different board game means, whether it's writing or creating other things that aren't just games or getting into publishing, crowdfunding, things like that. And so we just chat about all the different angles, the different pros and cons of the things that he's done, that I've done, things that have worked, things that didn't, and just different angles, different, different ideas that hopefully you can take if you want to do this full time, if you want to go pro in doing this. And and if you're also realizing that you're going to have to design like five or six games that are hits every year, if you're going to make any kind of real you know, full-time income off of this, then, then how else can you do it? And so hopefully this will provide you some ideas. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Yami Hakari Entertainment, the makers of Draconian Blood Honor, the most epic dragon board game for PvP fans. In Draconian Blood Honor, you and your friends can pick from six unique factions of dragons, each with their own skills and strategies. The aim is to earn blood honor coins by defeating other players and claiming the dragon crown. The game is thrilling, fun, and competitive, challenging your abilities and tactics. So be sure to check out Draconian Blood Honor and prepare for the most epic dragon board game adventure today. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome Joe Slack. So, Joe, really excited to have you on the show. You and I have kind of a very similar path in a lot of ways throughout this whole game design, game industry journey in that I, I think we both realized early on that the best way to make a living doing this was to not just design games, but was to diversify our portfolio of skills, so to speak, of diving into different things. I know you've uh, taught at university, you've taught game design, uh, you've done conferences and events, uh, you've done development work, you've done coaching and consulting, you've got courses like you, you've done a lot of different things. And I'm on the same, I'm in the same boat, man. It's like, okay, how, how do we have like 12 different streams of income <laughs> to then cobble together a living, a full-time living where I can pay all my bills and, and have food on the table and my kids can, you know, get to go on vacation every now and then. And so first of all, before we get into kind of like the specifics, the, what have you done and I done and, and pros and cons, Tell me why, like from the beginning, what was kind of the bigger picture vision to take on this almost hybrid approach of these different methods, these different kind of categories of, of things in the, still in the gaming hobby? Kind of tell me your, your mental thought process, and then we'll dive into kind of the, the nuts and bolts. Sure. Yeah. So I've been working in the healthcare world for about 17 years, and I really needed a change. And I've been working on designing board games. Um, on my spare time and was really, really loving it and making some traction there, getting really close to starting to get some games signed and, you know, talk to my wife about, you know, what about you know, making this transition and could this be a possibility? And we, you know, took all the steps we needed to uh, get ourselves financially secure and everything. So we knew do that because we knew going in, that, you know, games, they take a while to pay off. Even if you do get one signed, it can be years before it actually comes out and then even longer before you get paid for it. So I knew as well that there would have to be um, other approaches, other things to do. And I've always uh, kind of taken the approach of whatever I learn, I want to share with other people. I want to be able to help other people and doing that as well. So in 
learning game design, I also wanted to show other people how they could design games and get ahead much faster than I did. Like it took me years, you know, to get, you know, my first game out there and, and to, to make something of it. So that's why I wrote my first book, The Board Game Designer's Guide. And I did that before I had quit and gone full time. And that kind of gave me the idea that I can not only uh, design games, but also help others as well. And there's probably a lot of different ways to do that through writing books like I had started, um, through teaching a course, through consulting, through, you know, through, through so many different methods, some that I hadn't even discovered yet. But I thought that, you know, it'd be a good idea to really uh, dive into that and see what other options were out there besides just designing games, because it was I knew it wasn't going to be uh, completely reliable as a source of, uh, of income. Yeah, absolutely. And it also, it taps into something I've talked about on the show in the past. I think you're, you're right in, in line with this as well. It's, I don't do this to make money. I make money so that I can do this, right? I'm, I'm not doing all these podcasts and, and all this information and resources and putting all this stuff out into the world because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to drive a Lamborghini or anything like anything like that. It's, it's deeper than that. Just trying to help people, like you were saying, trying to help people get the lessons without the scars, right? So if I can help someone not fall into the same holes and, and traps that I fell into, then, uh, then that's, that's definitely success. That's definitely a win. But, but also realizing you, you still have to pay bills, right? Um, and what does that look like for you in your own personal situation? Um, you know, for me, I was living in Honduras where the cost of living is very, very, very much lower than it is in the United States or Canada and other parts of the world. So that was kind of helpful. Um, also I had another job. I had actually two full-time jobs that uh, were seasonal, right? So one was during the summer full-time, the other one was during the school year full-time. And so the whole gaming, game design, gaming industry stuff, I could do part-time-ish, although it really just became another full-time job, which is kind of how it goes. Uh, but what, what are people willing to sacrifice? So talk to me about that. You had a, you had a job in the healthcare field, which a lot of those jobs pay fairly well. They, they, you know, they're not, minimum wage or anything. So tell me some of the things you had to think through, talk about with your wife, sacrifice, kind of figure out, especially early on, and just any kind of, anything you learned from that, that other people can take away. Absolutely. And you really hit the nail on the head there. We're really doing this because of our passion, because we love working on board games, not to make money. I mean, I don't think anybody uh, jumps into it thinking they're going to make a ton of money. You don't see a lot of people coming out of their MBA program saying, I'm going to be a board game designer or run a publishing company, because that's a, an easy way to lose a lot of money very quickly if you don't know what you're doing. Um, so when I was working in the healthcare world, I was working in um, uh, analytics and business intelligence. So I'm a, I'm a numbers, I'm a math guy. And I'd worked my way up to becoming a manager there. And I was making a six-figure salary, but I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And I really, you know, was at that point in my life where I was like, I need a change. Like happiness to me is more important than making a ton of money. I need to have enough to get by on, but I don't need to necessarily earn as much as I'm earning now to still have a very happy and content life. So that was one of the biggest sacrifices was going down from a six-figure salary to, you know, zero essentially at the start and then you know working my way back up through uh, getting some games signed uh selling uh books and and uh starting my courses and things like that uh but it, it was quite a transition and i was very fortunate because i put in my notice and i gave them lots of notice because i wanted had a lot of time to transition and at that same time um uh, a friend of mine reached out and said, hey, uh, Loria University is looking for somebody to run their first year uh, course for game design and development. And I, I had heard about the program and I knew Scott Nicholson who was running it and I heard a lot of great things about it. And I said, oh, is this is this for me? Is this something that I could actually do? And I looked at the application and sure enough, like I, I felt like I was uh, very well qualified and I was already interested in teaching other people about game design. So I applied and I got the position. Um, it was only a uh, like a, a four month um, uh, maternity leave coverage type of thing. But it was it was a great opportunity to kind of get in there, uh, get my feet wet. I'd still have a little bit of income coming in from there and do game design on the side. So I was kind of like doing almost like half and half <laughs> teaching and doing that. So I, I already started kind of with a bit of a hybrid approach before I went kind of more full time in, in with, uh, with the games and uh, design games. But yeah, definitely there was a lot of sacrifices as I'm sure you've experienced as well, um, earning less money, um, you know, not having as much stability, not knowing exactly how much is coming in on that next paycheck and, and that type of thing. So you need to really, before you make a transition like that, have, um, you know, money in the, in the bank and, and have a plan 
um, so that, you know, if, if you do have a couple lean months or whatnot, you're going to be okay. Uh, but that's where you have to really start thinking about, you know, what are those other things that I could do? What am I good at? Uh, where can I use my skills to, to help other people or to find my place in the industry? So yeah, there was a lot of sacrifice, but at the same time, there are a bunch of huge benefits and, you know, maybe they're not quite as, as measurable and tangible, but I am so much happier, you know, in the last, you know, five years that I've been doing this than I was in the previous, you know, 17 years in my previous career. I mean, early on, I really enjoyed when I was working in the healthcare industry, but the last few years, it was like just really time for a change. So I think just that change, that, um, that happiness that I found was was more important than anything else. I love getting up every day and working on games and working with other game designers and, and helping other game designers. I, I, I wake up and I feel energized. And at the end of the day, I don't feel like I've even been working necessarily. I mean, some days are a bit more work than others, but uh, a lot of the time it, it's just a, a really enjoyable experience and I love what I'm doing. Yeah, what's the old saying? Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Something like that. <laughs> so, all right, that, that makes a lot of sense, especially if you are unhappy in a position. You know, money can only take you so far, you know, and they've done studies about how much money a person needs to make before it really doesn't make a difference in their life as far as like happiness and, and deeper kind of inner joy and feelings like that. And it's not that much. It's like 80 grand or, or something. Like it's not a, a ton of money. You, you think it'd be, oh, it'd be like a millions of dollars, but it's not. It's really like not even quite six figures that it takes for a regular average person to just be content with how much money they have and being able to pay their bills and things like that. So I think that's something to take into account. Another thing is, so did was your spouse working or does she work as well to also bring in an, an income? Yeah, uh, my wife's a teacher and she's been uh, teaching for a number of years and, and luckily uh, they pay our teachers uh, very reasonably here. So uh, we were able to get by. So if it was a case where, you know, it was, it was lean for a little bit, you know, we'd be okay. We had some money in the bank as well. Um, so our situation was was pretty good. We wouldn't necessarily be going on as many vacations and doing um, as many, you know, fun things and going out as much. Um, but, you know, the happiness was more found in, in what we were doing every day. And then, you know, hopefully that would grow. And, you know, there's always, you know, that plan B, if things really don't work out after a few years, you know, I, I could go back to healthcare industry, but, you know, there was also that pressure that I didn't want to. Uh, I wanted to continue to make games and and, uh, and and work in this industry more. So that's what really pressed me to say, yeah, I've got to I've got to make this work and and you know try a few different approaches. And as long as when you're making those choices and trying different things, you're not banking on something where it's like, if this doesn't work out, everything's going to fall apart. Like I'm, I'm, I'm putting down everything I have into this. It's like, no, you try something. If it doesn't work out, you move on to the next thing. And I think that's uh, the best approach to, to try with this, that you're not going to, you know, break the bank or, or have to uh, give up your dream because of uh, one bad choice. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you do have a spouse that's bringing in, you know, a decent income and especially if they have insurance that you can, you can be covered under. That's another thing that really helps. I've got several friends in the industry and their spouses are doctors or lawyers or you know, are teachers and they have really good pay, really good benefits. And that allows you a little more flexibility. And so I guess what I'm saying is uh, to anybody listening, marry well, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> marry a great person that can help you and support your dreams and you support them. And, you know, not that you marry somebody for their money, but, um, uh, you know, in the, in the context of this conversation, might not, might not be the worst thing in the world. But um, no, I'm joking. Get back to happiness. But um, I think one thing I want to I want to pull out of what you just said. You knew you could go back. Now I think that's it's nice to have that backup plan, whether it's a degree or a skill set or some kind of you know, job experience, where you know, worst comes to worst, I can go get a job in the same industry or do something similar. That's nice. But to have that degree of understanding, it's almost like knowing what hell looks like, if that makes sense. So one thing <laughs> I did, I used to do this with my students, uh, with my seniors in high school, and it was helping them develop a plan for their lives, going into college, going out into the world. And we would go through this series of just questions, right? They would just kind of write things down, write responses down. And part of that was trying to figure out, okay, what does quote unquote heaven look like for you? Like in an ideal world, perfect world situation, what does that look like? for you and your health and your relationships and your job opportunities and, and education and with your parents, like all the different things. What does heaven, like a perfect world look like? And then on the opposite side, what does hell look like? What does like the most broken, messed up, ugliest route you could possibly take in life? That's still reasonable, right? Uh, that's still a plausible thing. And I would have them write that down too. And so now we have something to aim at and we have something to run from, which <laughs> something to run from is very motivational. It's very, very powerful. And it actually led to some very kind of interesting, deep, sad conversations sometimes. Like there was one student I had 
And, you know, we were chatting about it and he said, hell, huh? Okay. Well, I really don't want to end up like my dad. And I was like, oh shoot. Okay. Well this, mm, all right, let's talk about that. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you know, my dad, you know, he cheated on my mom and he's gone and working all the time. And like, he just started laying out kind of the, all the different broken aspects of his father and his father's relationship with him and different things. And then we started unwinding that and saying, okay, well, let's back up because your dad didn't wake up one day working a hundred hours a week. He didn't wake up one day and just decide, Oh, I'm going to cheat on your mom. Like that doesn't happen. We're humans. Like we, we, it's a slow fade. So let's walk that back into these baby steps of how he ended up there. That way, when you start making any of those baby steps, you can recognize it and go, wait a minute, I know where this leads. And you can turn around and go the other direction. So in the context of this conversation, Joe, what I want people to, I want people to do this write down hell so that you know exactly what that looks like. Like for you, it might look like baby steps of, you know, I've got to make a certain amount of money each month or over the course of three or six months, something like that. Otherwise, I'm going to start taking those steps back towards a job that I need to have for the money, but that I don't want to have for my own well-being and mental health and happiness. Right. So that way you don't wake up one day six months later and you're like, oh, shoot, I got to I got to go back and get this job. It's like, well, you could have recognized that every baby step along the way. Right. And so I think that's something that people can take away from this. If you have a dream, game design related or whatever, doesn't matter. Really start thinking through what is an ideal situation look like? What does a what is the most unideal situation look like? Write those things down, have something to aim at and something to run from. Am I making sense, Joe? Is this, is this how I'm feeling? Like I'm getting maybe a little too existential, but, but talk to me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I definitely felt that. I felt the, 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 the push and the pull. There was the push from uh, where I was currently working and there was the pull of what I really wanted to do. And of course, you know, where I was working was, you know, paying a lot better, had all the benefits and everything. But like, like your situation, um, having, having a, uh, a partner who was working, had all those benefits and everything, there, there was a, a little bit more of a cushion which is really great. And, and you said this before, and I'll say the same thing again, uh, marrying the right person is, is so important. I married uh, an amazing woman, Lisa, and uh, she's, you know, made my life wonderful. And, uh, it, and she's super supportive and has allowed me to, uh, you know, take these opportunities to try these different things to, you know, leave my career for something that was uncertain. Um, just saying, yeah, I, I, I trust you. I believe in you. Um, so having that type of person uh, behind you is really important. And then having that push and pull of what you want to go towards and what you don't want to fall back towards again at the same time is going to be really motivating to say, yeah, I need to make this happen. How can I make this happen? And and taking those steps to get there. Yeah, for sure. There's an old story. I think I've told it on the show before. I'll tell it again. There was, there was a guy and his wife, this millionaire and his wife, and they're on a road trip and they stop at a gas station to get some gas and the wife goes in, you know, get a snack, use the bathroom, whatever. And then she, but she's gone for a little while. So the husband, he, he finishes up, you know, gets the gas, pays for it at the pump, whatever, and goes inside. And he sees his wife there at the counter chatting with the, uh, with the attendant, the guy behind the counter. And then it's kind of flirty. It's almost like, Hey, whoa, Hey, Hey, what are you, what are you doing? And so anyway, his wife sees him like, Oh, okay. You know, says goodbye. Get, they get back in the car. And as they're driving, the husband's like, who was that? And the wife says, Oh, that was uh, that was my boyfriend from high school. And, uh, and the millionaire, the guy, the husband, he says, oh, I bet you, bet you feel good. You know, bet you're glad you married me and not some gas station attendant. And she said, no, I was just sitting here thinking if I had married him, he'd have become a millionaire. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> like metaphor. I mean, but marrying the right person, I, I don't think I can oversell it. I mean, it's just, or just having the right relationships, even if you're not getting married, like just having the right people in your life to be supportive, to be helpful, to be intentional, to call you out on your garbage, which is what spouses are really good at, right? I had a conversation with my wife last night that was, it was not fun, uh, where she looked at me and she's like, hey, you're doing this thing. And I'm like, no, I'm not. You yes, you are. I had to step back and go, oh crap, I am doing this thing. <laughs> I got to fix this, you know? Uh, and it wasn't nothing, it wasn't anything like life-changing. It was just some little thing that I was that was annoying and being, you know, I had to be right about it. And she called me out on it. And I was like, thank you so much for loving me enough to have this conversation. This is not fun. And now I got to go wrestle and unpack some things. But that is the, the beauty of having people in your life that can do that. And if you're chasing a dream, you're going to have to have that. You're going to have to have people that will, will help you along the way, even if they're just cheerleaders, even if they're just kind of helping you get back up every time you fall down or, or whatever it is. But at the same time, what's interesting about, so my story is a little bit different of getting into gaming 
I, I had a job, I had two jobs that I really enjoyed. I had jobs that I loved, that I was very happy with. I, I love waking up on Monday morning and going to work for those jobs, but I also loved game design and publishing and the board game design lab and all these things too. And so I was, I ran into a, a separate, but maybe just a challenging conundrum of, I need, I, I need to pivot, but I don't want to, not because of money, <laughs> but because I just enjoy doing the things I'm doing. And so I think sometimes you run into that as well and you just have to make a decision, but I could always go back. Like the world, is, there's no shortage of, or, or there's no, there's no surplus of missionaries. There's no surplus of people working with the homeless on the streets and stuff like that. Like that, that is a factory that's probably not going to close. And so I can always go back to that if I needed to, and I can supplement that in different ways voluntarily, but um, it's nothing to think about. It's, it, it's not just of a, uh, I got to get out of this thing. Like it could be, I just want to do this because it's different, right? It's, it's a, it's a, a dream I want to chase. It's something I want to try a challenge I want to take on. So talk to me about that. What have been some of the biggest challenges we already talked about the money, but other challenges you faced as you've gotten into game design and teaching and course building and event planning, all these different things that you're now doing. Talk to me about challenges you've run into, whether you're perceived or, or you just like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize I was going to have to deal with that. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I thought that I would be spending, you know, most of my day designing games. And it's, <laughs> it, it, yeah, uh, even though, you know, I titled myself as a game designer, um, you know, I also decided I was going to start you know, publishing games and, you know, I'm running my courses and running my books and everything else. And only a very small fraction of my time is actually spent on game design and playtesting everything. So I thought it would be much more. Um, I, I mean, I'm definitely doing more of it than I was maybe when I had a, a full-time job, but, you know, in, a, in like a 40 hour work week or however many hours I, I'm working, um, it's only a, a small number of hours that I'm actually sitting down and working on games. And, and also, I didn't expect I would be spending so much time in front of a computer. You'd think yeah. that, you know, as a game designer, a board game designer in the tabletop space, you're going to be sitting at a table playing games or whatever. But there's so many things with like digital implementations of games, testing them out online, um, making new files, uh, doing all the publishing stuff, you know, Kickstarter stuff, like so much of that stuff's in front of a computer. So um, those were things that I didn't necessarily expect. And uh, yeah, I mean, and, and trying different things as well. You know, early, early on, I thought, oh, what about um, uh, setting up something where it was like I'd have all, all these game designers come in and they'd have uh, their games on print and play and I could have like a membership kind of thing and everybody would join in and they get like a game every month kind of thing. And I kind of threw this idea out to people and I had like, you know, two or three people interested. And I was like, well, maybe this isn't, you know, big enough to really go with. And it would also be a lot of work trying to get everybody's games in and evaluate them and make sure that they're good. So I said, you know what, maybe I'll put that, that idea on hold and we'll see. And, uh, you know, there's been other people who have done something kind of similar to that and that have been successful. Like you think about um, uh, Jason Tagmeyer from Button Shy Games and he has his, you know, games coming out every month and they're available, you know, print and play and, and otherwise. And he has, you know, members come in and uh, they're getting a game every single month. You know, he's made that work, but, you know, it, it's taken him some time. I'm sure he didn't start off with, you know, thousands of people joining in right off the bat. Uh, but sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, trying something seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, I've written, you know, four books in game design, five if you include the second edition of my first book. And, you know, my first book has completely outsold the, the, the last three books by a fair margin. So I didn't know. I thought, you know, maybe if I'm writing more books, I'm getting more um, in, in detail on specific topics. Maybe people will be interested in that. But, you know, there was interest, but not nearly as much as more of a broad book about designing games and getting started. So, you know, you don't know these things until you try. You don't know which games are going to be the most successful. You don't know which books are going to be the most successful, which clients you're going to work, wind up working with the most. Like, it, it's just a lot of trial and error, uh, trying different things, seeing what works, and then just, you know, dialing right in on the things that are working that are, are being beneficial for other people and that you enjoy. And then putting aside those other ideas and, and saying, you know, maybe I'll come back to it or, you know, maybe that's not right for me. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me, I had a really good conversation with a group of students the other day. They contacted me this part of this high school robotics team and they're, they're designing board games to understand but robot robots and everything. It's really kind of cool what they're working on. And they invited me to come just chat with their kids for like an hour. And they were asking questions. These, I think, seven, eighth, ninth grade kids. And one of the questions I asked was, how do you know which games you want to work on? Because I talked about how, you know, games are, you're always full of ideas, but it's actually the implementation that really, really matters. They said, well, how do you know which games to work on? And I chuckled and I was like, whichever ones I think are going to actually make some money, right? Because this is, <laughs> this is a business, you know, as much as it's art and it's creativity and it's fun, it has to 
sell a certain number of copies to make sense, right? It has to it has to be worth all the time and effort and energy that goes into it. it has to be worth the investment, right? This is a this is not just a, a labor of love or a passion project, some, maybe to a certain degree, but it's also an investment that I need a return on that's going to justify everything that goes into it. Um, and so I think that's something you just you just have to think about. If you're going to get into this professionally, where you want to do this as you know full-time or part-time, the decision filter has to change. It can't just be, oh, I'm excited about this new idea. It has to turn into, who's going to buy this? And do I have access to that market? And am I able to deliver a product for this certain group of customers and this demographic that is going to make sense financially. And sometimes that conversation in your head sucks because you have a <laughs> yes. really cool idea and you're like, this is going to be so much fun and you're really excited about it, but you just, you can't make the math work. Like it just financially doesn't make sense. And maybe you can come back to it later. Yeah. It, it really does come down to the game is going to be a product. People are going to be buying it like anything else on the store shelves or, or, you know, on Kickstarter or whatnot. Um, so, it has to be something that's going to appeal to people. It's got to be something that that people are actually going to buy. And you know, some some games you come up with, and you know, the mechanics are great, the theme's great, and everything. But you know, maybe that audience is just very very narrow. And you know, you can put it up there and, and sell a couple hundred copies. But maybe your time is better spent on this other game that's going to have a much wider audience that you know could have the potential uh, to become something much bigger. And and it's hard as a game designer to put a game aside, especially one that you're really really interested in or this brand new idea. But sometimes you just have to say no. It, th I mean, there's there's just not that much of a market for this, or I, I can't sell this as a product. It's just too abstract or just not appealing, or I like there's just no art that's really going to stand out. But this other game. You know, maybe maybe you're thinking it's not at quite as good of a game, sol like solidly as mechanically, um, but maybe there's something about it that you know you're going to put it there, and it has just amazing table presence, and everybody's asking about it and wants wants to try it, and maybe you should focus on making that the best game that it should be. Yeah, so much of this comes down to marketing. How does it look on a table? What does the art look like? What what are the margins? You know, if you're designing a, a seventy dollar family game, I I don't know. That's a hard sell. Right. If you're designing a $50 really robust miniatures game and people are used to paying a hundred, like, oh, that's it. Okay. That might be a bit of a hook. I've, I've seen several companies now doing like the acrylic standees, which I don't know if those are cheaper or more expensive or, or not. But anyway, the perception is that the game should be cheaper. And so they're trying new things. I think that's another thing is always being willing to try something new and to pivot and to, to put something out there into the world, knowing that there's a really good chance it's going to fail. Right. And knowing that it is could fail just because you didn't do a good job. Like it might even be a good idea that somebody else could take it out there and, and have success with, but maybe the way you did it was just wrong, or maybe you didn't have the skill set yet, or you didn't put enough money into the marketing of it. Like there's so many different factors that contribute to failing and su succeeding and to just be okay with that. Right. And to not get your head too big when you do succeed and to not get too down, you know, in the, in the dumps when you, when you fail and just kind of keep going and figuring things out. Cause eventually uh, Jason Tagmar, you know, button shy started off as a button making company. It's called button shy because he made buttons, not because he made games. Right. And so, you know, he tried some things and got into this whole, you know, 18 card wallet game thing, game of the month kind of thing eventually. And it took off and now that's what he does. So I think that's nothing. It's just always being open to things failing. But then when, when things do succeed, leaning into it and figuring out, okay, how do I maximize my ability to, to do this well? So for you, you've talked about teaching. And I think that's another thing is finding ways to share your knowledge, right? If you've been designing games for two weeks, that means you're two weeks ahead of someone who just started, right? So even if you haven't been doing this forever, you can still kind of turn that around and help other people. Now, whether or not you can monetize that is a little bit different, but um, tell me about other ways that you've kind of found as far as revenue streams, um, Tell me about your courses. Tell me about any anything else as far as like a, a teaching standpoint that maybe other people could learn from. I'm not saying everybody listening to this needs to go make an online course or anything like that, but there's still ways that you can teach game design locally, even with, you know, go to your local library or different things. But tell me about that side. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've, I've heard from a lot of people who are, you know, just either reach out to me uh, to just ask some questions or say, oh, I was I was doing this with this. Uh, with this group. So you know, a lot of people have been maybe invited into uh, a classroom setting or a, or a camp or or something else, especially around like kids uh, and trying to get them interested in game design. So if you, know, you are known in your group of friends as a game designer, 
And then something comes up, you know, maybe one of them's a teacher or camp counselor or something. And they're like, oh, you know what? I wanted to do like a session on designing games with my kids. Would you be willing to come in? Because they know you know more than they do about game design. Uh, so even just, you know, putting it out there and, and, you know, playing your games with friends and letting them know this is what you're doing will open up those kinds of opportunities. And then, you know, if you really want to get deeper into it and you... Um, you know, been designing games for for a little while, then you can look into other ways to uh, to teach or con consult. And there's there's various ways to do that because you know there's people that are trying to get in uh, starting uh, game design, and people that are a little more advanced and they're trying to you know fi find out how to find a publisher. And then there's like Kickstarter and crowdfunding and like retail and everything else. So maybe it's just you have a, a specialty or skill in one of those areas. Maybe you really know how to sell things on Amazon. Then maybe you could teach other people about how to get their games on Amazon and sell their games or how to sell their games in retail. Maybe you know something about distribution. Um, so it really comes down to kind of what skills you have or what you've learned and what you can share and maybe where those gaps are. Because, uh, you know, at the at the time I was teaching at, at Laurier and then I finished up my stint there. And I was thinking, I was, even before I'd started at Laurier, I was thinking I'd love to be able to teach more people more broadly. And uh, one of the things I, I, I did was I looked to see what else was out there. And I found a couple of courses on like Udemy and, and elsewhere, but I felt they were really lacking. They were just talking about like, here's an idea for a game and you just go out and do it. But it really didn't allow people to uh, take their own idea and develop that further and then have somewhere to ask questions. And that's something that I really implemented in my course. And I really wanted to make sure was an opportunity for people to ask questions about their specific game, the struggles that they're having, because I didn't really see an opportunity to do that. So even if you can just be there for other people, um, even in the Board Game Design Lab forum um, on Facebook, um, answering questions, helping people out about things that maybe you know that other people don't. And you'll get advice on on things that you don't know that other people may know as well. So I think a lot of it's just getting really engaged with the other people that are really interested in it, um, looking for those opportunities and helping people out. And I, th I think there's other people that have, um, you know, went up, you know, going on working for publishing companies or doing other things in the industry just because they showed that they were really helpful. Like I know a few people who have just gone into a couple groups and given some like marketing advice. And then suddenly everybody's asking them questions about this. And then, you know, they, you know, they can get so much consulting out of this because they've shown that they know what they're doing and they're also in the board game space. So if you can kind of combine some of those things, then you can be seen as an expert or somebody at least that's knowledgeable in these uh, fields and then people will actually come to you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone go in with mentality of serve first and then that turns into paying gigs down the road. I'm not saying you go in and you just, if someone, I guess it's another thing as far as like, Let's make sure we frame this correctly. If someone reaches out to you to consult, to do art, graphic design, to share your expertise, and they want you to do it for free, no. <laughs> if you're reaching out to me because you think I have knowledge or skill set that you could benefit from, you're going. There needs to be a transaction of, of monetary value in, in some way. But if you notice online someone needs something and you have that expertise, reaching out to them and saying. Hey, I saw you're having this issue. Let me tell you how I solved it and point to, to an example. Like you can't just come in there with theory or something you read in a book. Like just say, hey, this is how I ran my Kickstarter campaign. This is what worked, what worked really well for me. This is what didn't work. This is what I would have done differently. I just want to give that you know information to you and good luck on your campaign. Who do you think that person's more likely to reach out to in the future when they need something? You know, just hey, hey that was a really good. Uh, example you gave, I really appreciate that advice. Uh, I'd love to bring you on for this this new campaign that I'm doing. Uh, what are, what would you charge for like consulting or coaching? But serving first turns into jobs later if you serve well, if you give really good advice and feedback and things like that. And so I think, Absolutely. you know, doing that in Facebook is perfect. I mean, Board Game Design Lab community, 16,000 people, which blows my mind. It continues. To, <laughs> it will never not blow my mind how big that group is getting. It's crazy. But so many opportunities on a daily basis to go in there and help people. One, because helping people is good anyway and serves your soul. But also, if you want to get into things from a business standpoint, what a great way to do it. And it's it's very just kind of non-confrontational. Like, it's not like anybody feels weird or anything, as long as you're not like, I, I'll give you some advice if you give me money. Like, don't turn it into spam <laughs> or something like that. But um, if you handle it well, I think things can can, can work out. Yeah, so I think you really have to go in uh, with that, that genuine spirit of, of yes. wanting to help people, um, wanting to, uh, to to give them some kind of benefit and not expecting anything in return. And just like here's like you said, what here's what I learned. This might help you to, you know, 
go go off and run with it. Here here's some examples. Um, you know, maybe maybe this will help you down the road. And you never know where those opportunities will lead to, but you have to go in genuinely wanting to help people because you're passionate about it. You want them to succeed. And that's one of the great things about the board game industry is it's really not super competitive. It's all about, um, you know, helping each other out, making the best board games out there and getting them out to the world and bringing more people into our world. Um, so you really don't have to worry about that, you know, competition and, and people are trying to, you know, run all over each other, but, you know, we're just trying to help each other out to make better games. Yeah, for sure. We're not in an industry that has to compete really. It's not like we're selling cars. Like if I run a Ford dealership and you run a Honda dealership, we're, we're kind of competing over one customer because they're not going to buy both. You know, they're going to buy one or the other. Where in, in gaming, I, I've never met anyone who bought just one board game. I don't, it's like eating <laughs> no. one Pringle. Like it just doesn't happen. You know, they're, they buy one, they have fun with it. They go buy 25 more and eventually they have like 17 Calyxes at their house, like all foot filled up. And then they got to downsize. <laughs> and then they sell those games to new people coming into the hobby and it all just kind of like, it's a flywheel. But one thing I want to go back to that you were talking about with your course and things like that was that you were looking at gaps in the market. You were trying to figure out, okay, here's what I'm good at. Here's my skill set, my experience level. How can I apply that in a way that isn't being applied or maybe isn't being applied a lot, right? And so I, I think that's another thing. Just kind of think outside the box. This podcast is an example. I looked around for a podcast that I wanted to listen to and couldn't really find it. And so I made it myself never anticipating that it would go 300 and something episodes like that is crazy, but I've, I found, I couldn't find what I wanted. So I, I did it. So, so anyone listening to this, if you're trying to get into the industry in some way, how can you come at it from a different angle? You know, especially if you're coming from a different industry that maybe does things in a different way. Now, maybe there's a reason we don't, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's another idea for someone to, to come into it. You know, with this board game design pro project I've been working on for a while, I didn't want to make a course because there's already courses. Your course, there's J. Cormier's course, there's other courses out there. If somebody wants a course, they can find a course. So I want to do something different. And so mine's not a course. It's it's skill sessions and different things like that to help people with certain skills that are you know involved in game design and game publishing, mainly publishing, maybe the business side. But that's not really on the market, right? It's, it's a different thing. Even though it's kind of similar, it's still different because I'm trying to hit a different group of people. And I think there's plenty of room for everybody because we have so many different angles we can come into because really the gaming space is not that big. I mean, if you compare it to other mediums, especially if you look at video games, movie, TV, we're tiny. Um, and so I don't know there's still lots of room to grow and to do different things. Tell me what else, what else? I know you've done coaching, you've done development. Talk to me about that a little bit. How did you get those gigs? Is it somewhere you reach out to other people? Do they reach out to you a little bit of both? Yeah. So uh, I'd say a little bit of both. Um, in, in some cases with like the development, for example, I might have like a, a student in the course and they say, you know, I need help getting my game over this last hurdle or yeah, I've taken the course, but I still, you know, I, I still struggle with this one aspect on it. I just need some assistance. So I've been able to do some development work through there. Um, also, uh, Peter C. Hayward, who you've had on, on your show, um, he was looking for somebody to help with uh, some development for uh, a card game. And I, I offered and uh, took that on and did the development work there. Um, and other people just kind of reaching out uh, who've, you know, known me uh, through, you know, my posts, my course and things like that have, have kind of reached out to me for either development work or some consultation. So uh, people who have been looking for uh, consultation for kickstarting their game or for developing their game further. And they just had questions and that type of thing and wanted somebody with a bit more experience uh, to step in to help them out. So uh, in a lot of cases, it's just people, you know, being out there and showing that you're helpful and getting, getting your name out there, uh, people will know what you know, and they'll want to come and work with you. They'll see that what you've done, especially if you've had some success, you can show what success you've had. You can show how you've helped other people. Uh, people are very willing to kind of jump in there and help you out. So I think it is, is a matter of uh, finding out what you do well, how you help other people. And for, for other people, maybe that's bringing, like you said, some of your own skills from your other industries in. Um, project management, I think, is a huge gap. I think there's a lot of publishers that would really benefit from help with uh, with project management. So if you have those kind of skills, maybe you can get in with our larger publishers there. Uh, graphic design, which can be like freelance or a, a bigger uh, a company, a bigger publisher, maybe you can get some, some more steady work there. Um, art, of course. Um, marketing, um, you know, 
a lot of that it can be done like freelance, but if you get enough companies interested in you and you're going into all the different groups and, and showing, you know, what you've learned through, you know, maybe Facebook ads, uh, through different social media posts, there will be, there's kind of two, two different type, types of people that are going to be watching, watching what you're doing. Some are going to be the do-it-yourselfers and they're going to see what you post and they're going to be like, oh, cool. I want to go try this. And they'll go out and run at, they'll go run their ads, their social media and try the same kind of things you've said. And then there's going to be other people who are like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work. Um, I, I'd rather, can I just hire you to do that? Like you sound like you know what you're doing. So uh, I think in either way, you're going to be helpful to, to people in one way or the other if you're showing what you've learned and it, it's just being genuine and, and sharing what you've learned. And I don't go out with the intention of, of like trying to bring people in and, and get, get them to like sign up with me or anything. I've just had people reach out to me who've said, you know, oh, I, I saw what you posted about this and, and, and you seem to know what you're doing. Um, can we talk about, you know, working together and, and you helping me, you know, bring my game uh, further forward or help with my Kickstarter project or something like that. So it all just comes back down, back down to uh, being helpful to start with. One angle I've seen work really well, and I think crowdfunding nerds is doing this. I've seen other companies do it, especially when it comes to like marketing and like the business, like professional side of things. Give away the information for free sell the implementation. So when it comes to best practices for setting up a Facebook ad, okay, here's a video. Here's a five minute video, how to set up the dashboard to get your Facebook ads up and running. If you want me to do this for you, send me an email, right? And so you're giving and 90%, 90 plus percent of people are going to watch the video and go, okay, cool. Most of them won't do it anyway, just because that's the nature <laughs> of, of us as people, <laughs> right? Some of them will do it. And a very small fraction of people will send you an email and say, hey, I want to work with you. But you can build a business, a pretty robust company, off of that tiny fraction of people as long as the product is good, as long as the information you're giving away is good. There's no substitute for a good product. The best marketing in the world is a really good product because then other people talk about it. They they refer you to their friends. They want other people to experience this thing. If they have a good uh, experience with you, then they're probably going to refer you out to the people, especially if you reach out to them for testimonials and, and things like that. But you can give away information, sell implementation. I think that works really well, depending on which kind of, it doesn't work for everything. Uh, you know, I've seen some people try to start up licensing like agencies, like they're going to, you know, you send me your game and then I'll go pitch it to a bunch of publishers. Those don't work very well because the percentages are already so daggum low that, you know, half of nothing is, is still nothing, you know, so <laughs> it, that doesn't necessarily work. Um, so you have to really think through the financial side of things. But anyway, just again, encouraging people to take it, take things from a different angle. Another thing I want to ask you about, you've designed a lot of several games at this point, a lot of puzzle games. And I actually reached out to you recently and said, hey, Joe, I've got this project I'm working on. I really want a puzzle game to be part of this series of games that I'm doing. You've done some really good puzzle games. Would you be willing to design a puzzle game for this new project? You know, basically I am, instead of you pitching me a game, I'm pitching you and saying, here are things and would you want to be part of this? And, you know, so it's almost like a reverse. That's nothing. You, if you create great games, publishers will reach out to you and say, hey, I really like what you did there. Can you do something for me over here with this new thing? So I think that's another thing to, to think about. Have you had other companies reach out to you? Um, try, well, I, I did uh, kind of earlier on have a... a designer slash publisher uh, reach out to me and say, uh, I, I like the games you've been making, that type of thing. Would you be interested in, in jumping on this project? I'm going to wind up publishing it, but I need some help with the uh, development of it and playtesting. And, and it wound up be, becoming the game Kingdoms Candy Monsters, uh, which I published with uh, Zamilio Entertainment. Uh, so yeah, that that has happened uh, before. And I, I think what you're saying is, is absolutely true. You hear about people like um, Senfum Lim and Daryl Andrews and others who are just really, really well known in the industry. And, you know, maybe somebody has uh, an IP for a game and they're like, we need, we want to get this made and we only have a short window. Okay. Let's, you know, call up somebody that we know that can make a game this great. So if you get known for making games, especially if you have a certain kind of brand or niche, then um, people are going to come to you when they're looking for that type of thing. So that that's another great thing to do is, is to try to kind of find your brand. If there's, there's a specific type of game that you make or a specific thing in the industry that you can do really, really well and you get known for, people will come to you for that. Yeah, absolutely. I actually had a meeting, this is a few weeks ago, where a marketing company, this giant multi-zillion dollar company that works with brands that are like sold in Walmart. Um, not gaming stuff, but like just in general brands um, in the snack industry, in the, the soda industry, different things. They reached out to me because they're trying to basically figure out how can they implement some board game 
ideas into some snack products and some drink products and some things. And and these are people in New York City and this big marketing firm. They have no idea about anything board game related. They're like, we're not going to, you know, do we make Candyland, you know, but Mountain Dew themed or do you like, what do we do? Like, and so they reached out to me because of the board game design lab, right? They, if you Google board game design, the board game design lab is one of the first things that pops up. And so my SEO is another thing to think about. It's, it, anyway, um, they reached out to me and we had this really excellent meeting. They paid for my time, which is wonderful. And then towards the end, uh, I was telling them, I was like, you know, here, here's a list of game designers that I feel like you should reach out to. This is not in my wheelhouse as a game designer. Like this is not the kind of stuff that I'm particularly good at, but let me give you a list of names of people that are good at it, that I really think would do well with these types of projects. If you decide to go forward in, in what we're talking about. So that's another thing because those designers have done a good job on those kinds of games and because they're known and because they come on this show and I've been able to talk to them and like become friendly with them. We, you know, we're not going hanging out and going vacation with each other's families or anything, but like we're friendly. <clears throat> and because of all those things, you know, I was able to pass on that list of names and maybe they get reached out to, but again, it all comes into the industry, the hobby, the relationships that you build, how you treat people online. Cause I, I've seen a lot of people in the industry that really treat people poorly online. They say terrible things. They bully other people. They, they throw, you know, all sorts of insults and things because of somebody else's political beliefs or religious beliefs or whatever it is. And I'm not referring them. Sorry. I'm not putting my name on you, but if you treat people well and you try to lift other people, lift other people up and encourage and all that. Okay. If, if I hear of something that I think you'd be a good fit for, I'm going to put your name down. I'll, I'll, I'll copy you in on an email chain. So I think it's another thing is just being a decent person, <laughs> right? Realizing that everything you do online is, is as if you're doing it in reality, right? A lot of times we have that weird divide. It's almost like, I, I can't tell you how many people I've met in real life who are lovely people, but online are trolls, right? Just <laughs> awful online. It's like, you're losing work. You're losing opportunities. And it just is, is what it is. So I think it's something just always be aware that even people that don't comment, right? People that lurk, they still see it. They, they, you're losing opportunities because of it. But what else? What are some other things you would talk? You want to talk about as far as things you've done, you've tried, that maybe worked or didn't work? Anything else? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think one of the things I'd love to talk about uh, a bit more is um, kind of taking the hybrid approach in terms of publishing games as well, because um, I've taken the approach where. I've worked with publishers and they've licensed some of my games. And in other cases, I've taken my game and, you know, launched it on Kickstarter, for example, and become a self-publisher. So um, I, I think there's a lot of value in that if you have, you know, the time and the effort to do so. Um, in my case, uh, I'm doing this full time and I have way more game ideas than I could ever publish myself. Um, but also I realized that being on brand, which is what we talked about uh, previously, is really important as well. So I might come up with, you know, really wacky party game and I've got this other Euro game and I've got this other puzzly game. Well, I have to think about when I'm making these games, who's going to be the best person to publish those things as well. So in my case, uh, Crazy Like a Box, which is my publishing company, I like to put out puzzly games that make you feel clever. So if I make a game that fits that mold, maybe that game is gonna be something that I feel comfortable publishing myself. But maybe that party game, I'm thinking, oh, there's you know this handful of other publishers out here that will be a much better match, and they've got a better audience for it. I don't have to find that audience, um, and maybe that uh, you know drier Euro game is is a better fit for this other publisher over here. Um, so I think it's it's really uh, interesting to think about your games that you're making, who they will fit with, and if they're going to be something that you want to publish yourself or do or do the, uh, do the other way around and pitch to other people. And I think it's, it's fine to take the approach of trying different things. Um, you know, I've tried publishing, you know, my first game that I tried publishing was a, was a party game. It did not succeed, but I learned a lot from it. Uh, and then I, I decided that I really wanted to take a different approach. I, I evolved as a game designer. It was making more puzzly games, more thinky games and thought that, you know, I, I want to try it again, but with a different type of a game. And, I think it's great for somebody to come along and say, I don't know what I want to try. I kind of want to try the public self-publishing thing, but it seems like a lot of work, but I want to see how it goes and see if that's what I want to do. Or maybe I want to pitch to a publisher and see how that experience is. And don't be afraid to, to say, okay, that experience wasn't what I wanted. Maybe it was way too much work, or maybe I couldn't find a publisher for it and I'll do it myself. And to try different things to say, yeah, okay, the first game, maybe I'm pitching and the next game, maybe I'm going to try on my own. 
and then see which approach you like and then decide, you know, am I going to go one road, the other road, or or just keep with a hybrid approach uh, and try to match things up to the best brand, to the best audience to get my game out to the most people possible. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a big fan of the hybrid approach. I have several games that don't fit my company at all, right? But I've got friends in the industry that I think, okay, this might fit their company. It might be able to make them money. And then I get to make a piece of that as well. And so I, I think that's a really good way to do it. Also, it's it's hard to do a bunch of projects in a year, right? Especially if you're really going to lean into all the marketing and all the time and effort. So if you're designing and publishing, and, and that's another thing is once you get into publishing, you can start licensing other designers games, right? And I think that's really the only way to do anything long-term. Otherwise you're always going to be held back by the fact some of you said right off the bat at this cover in this conversation, you end up not being able to spend enough time on game design. So if you're trying to design and publish several games a year, I just don't know that you're going to have the time, you know, if, assuming you also have a life, maybe if you don't have a life, you can, you can do that. Right. Um, but if you have anything going on outside of that, it's, it's very difficult because publishing takes up so much time and just mental space. Right. And, and being able to switch gears um, to go from customer service and talking to the manufacturer and talking to people, helping with marketing and all this stuff. And then I got to switch gears and now I've got to think through this game design challenge that I'm, I'm working on. Uh, it's hard, man. And you just scheduling is a big thing. Tell me about that. Tell me about your schedule during the week to make sure that all these different things you have going on are getting the time that they need. Do you have any kind of tips for making it happen on a weekly basis? Yeah, I have always been a, a big planner. I like to plan out my week. So usually the week before, I kind of have an idea of what I need to get done. So I, I plan out all the things I need to get done and kind of slot them in by day as best as I can. And, and that adjusts, adjusts and changes um, as needed. Uh, but I try to say, okay, what are, the, what are the things that absolutely need to get done? So maybe if I'm running a Kickstarter campaign, I need to finish off the campaign page. I got to get the rules finished, um, you know, whatever tasks those are that are the highest priority and try to get them done. But I also have these other priorities of, you know, posting a blog every week um, and making sure that's, you know, written and posted and everything. So I think part of it is, is getting ahead on things. Like if you do something that's on a, on a regular basis, like posting a blog or a podcast or something to have a backlog of them. Uh, really, really helps uh, so that you're not, you know, waking up Monday morning and say, oh, shoot, I got to get something together and throw and, you know, throw something up there because it's not going to be the best quality and you're going to be really stressed out. So I think having a backlog of those things, um, uh, working ahead on your schedule and, um, uh, you know, using like uh, like a Gantt chart or, uh, or any kind of other, you know, project management tool for specific projects can be really, really helpful. Um, I like to break things out, though, into 12-week chunks. Um, it was a, a book I read years ago called The 12-Week Year. And they basically break it out into three 12-week segments with a, a week of like vacation or break in between. And the premise was that you know if you have a day job, usually you're setting these goals. And okay, this is what my goal is for the year. But quite often you'll get into month nine or 10 before you really start thinking about it. And you're like, oh yeah, I really got to get that thing done. But you've like kind of wasted those previous months not working on these things because you've had such a long window and then you wind up cramming so much into the end. So if you put it down into a 12 week uh, segment, you can really pack a lot of stuff in there and say, okay, this is what I need to get done. And you're going to be really super focused and you can have like, you know, one project every quarter. Maybe you're getting everything ready for uh, pr promoting your game. And then the next quarter is like launching your game and, and getting into the pledge manager and everything, and then development, whatever it is. Uh, I try to break it out. So I know what my big goals are for kind of that quarter of the year, and then give myself that break afterwards, or sometimes it's somewhere in between, depending on kind of when the, the timing works out. But I think planning those things out into, into those 12 week chunks has really helped me. And then every week just breaking down, okay, what are the things I need to do to get there? So it's kind of all just doing steps and kind of working backwards. If I'm going to launch or, or do something on a certain date, what are all the things I need to get done? And then putting in a buffer because, you know, things always take longer than expected, especially if it's your first time doing something. Um, so, you know, giving yourself that buffer, planning it out um, and knowing all the steps that are going to come in between. Yeah. I love that. The whole 12 week idea. We as humans, we overestimate what we can do in a day. We underestimate what we can do in a year. We just don't have the psychological capacity to like really comprehend those those two different things, you know, short term and long term. But breaking it down into 12 week chunks makes a lot of sense. And you can also kind of give yourself the, the, the motivation right, to hit those goals because it is a limited time frame. It's not 
12 months, which is a long time, really, if you, if you think about it, like from any creative perspective, like a year is a pretty long time. But if you turn that into 12 weeks, all of a sudden things get, things get done quicker too. It's nothing. Whenever I only have, like, let's say I've got an event tonight, right? And, you know, I've got three hours between now and, and when I have to leave to go this big, important event. So, and I've got all this big, you know, I've got this long list of to-do list items. It's amazing how I can get more done and get more crossed off of my to-do list in that three-hour chunk than if I had an entire eight-hour day. It's just weird how our brains work. And so how can you limit your scope as far as the amount of time you have? Because it's interesting, all of a sudden, you focus more on the most important things. You have a tendency to get less distracted, right? Because you have to be focused because you have such a limited amount of time. And and you, you don't you don't have this like weird background feeling of, ah, but I've got like six or seven hours. I'll just scroll Instagram. I'll just, you know, wander around YouTube and, and travel down some rabbit holes <laughs> for a while. When you don't have that luxury, you get a lot more done. And so breaking your year into these 12-week chunks, I feel like helps helps make those things, you know, happen as far as you're, you're limiting the, the scope and getting more done. That, that's a really cool thing. I'm, I'm going to look into that, man. I'm going to see how, how I could maybe implement that into my own life because that's the one thing I've really kind of been struggling with is just getting things done ahead of time versus waiting till last until the last minute. But part of it's just because I have too much time. There's too much time in between. And so <laughs> I can afford to wait, right? Because of just how our brains work. But um, another thing I've been thinking about is how can I prepare during the calm to be ready for the storms, right? So when you have a low, a low period to record more podcasts or write more blog posts or, or work on more stuff, that way when life gets crazy and busy, either planned or unplanned, I, like you're saying, I have this backlog of material and creative work that I've already done. That way I'm not overly stressed, you know? And so instead of recording one podcast episode a week that then goes out the next week, which is what I used to do. Now I do my best to record at least two episodes a week, sometimes three. That way, when life does get kind of crazy and I have to cancel or reschedule or someone else has to cancel or reschedule, I'm not in a hole like, oh no, what am I going to do? And now there's all this extra stress. And no, it's like, no, I've got five in the tank. All good. Don't worry about it. You know? And so that's nothing just to kind of think about as a creative person. Anything else you want to say? Anything, any other avenues or methods that you've kind of leaned into or tried or anything as far as just kind of diversifying your time in the industry? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things is accountability, which is great. So um, I run a, a mastermind group with a, a number of other entrepreneurs in my area, and they're all in totally different fields, uh, which is another great thing to do because you can go in there and kind of bounce ideas off of each other. And you, nobody feels like, oh, oh somebody's going to steal my idea. Like, you know, it's, it's one thing in the board game industry where, you know, we're all uh, very friendly generally, uh, but in other industries, Maybe, you know, people might be a little more um, uh, careful with their ideas and sharing them. So uh, having that out there and, and having other entrepreneurs and people you can talk to are going through some of the same struggles, but in different ways and can see things from different perspectives uh, can be super helpful. And then the accountability aspect um, it, I have, uh, in, in our group every Monday, we say, okay, what are, what are we working on this week? What's our like number one goal? There might be a whole bunch of things you're working on, but what's the one thing you need to get done this week. And then on Friday we report back, did you get that thing done? And that just holds you uh, to such high account, um, that even, even if you told one other person you're going to get something done, there's such a high chance you're going to get that done compared to just being like, oh yeah, I'll get to that when I, when I want to. Um, so having that accountability is great. And I think also with the, the 12 week work week. What I try to do is try to focus on one, sometimes two, but one main thing I want to get done. So it almost breaks my year into quarters and say, okay, this quarter, I want to get this book released. The next quarter, I want to run a Kickstarter campaign. The next quarter, I want to you know, run a virtual summit. The next quarter, I want to do something else. So I know I have the focus on one thing. So you can have like four big projects that you want to do in a year. And that's a great way to space them out too. And then also not overwhelm your audience by having like one thing after another, after another, um, they're spaced out. You have time to plan and, and work on them. And there's something in interesting to keep you going. Cause I think as a game designer, one of the things we like is the variety and what we're doing, either the variety of the games that we're making, or if we're, you know, doing some publishing here, doing some writing over here, doing some game design over here, that variety is wonderful to have. So if you have these different projects you're working on at different times, they can keep you focused on that one thing, but then you don't get burnt out working on one specific type of thing. Yeah, I love that. That's a really good way, way to look at it. And it also reminded me other ways that people I've, I've met have gotten into the industry and doing full-time work 
is so John Brieger, who runs a playtesting company, like that's what he focuses on. He still does some game design development and things like that, but like his main thing is playtesting other people's games and working for companies and things like that. Uh, Andrew Schwartz, uh, he is a full time, I think he's full time, uh, rule book writer. So that's another different angle, and you can still design games, you can still do stuff on the side, but then taking a skill set, in his case, technical writing, and turning that into a profession, right? And, and working in the gaming industry. You know, I know people who are accountants. I know people who, like you're talking about project managers. Like there's so many different other skill sets that people have that then they can just apply it to games. So it's not just design, right? It's not just development. It's not just publishing. Like there are so many different other things you can do that you can still make a living, right? Now, are you going to get rich and famous? Probably not. But again, that's, like we said, that's not really why we're in this anyway. But, um, but Jim, this has been excellent, man. I know you got a game getting ready to come another one of your puzzly games. Tell me about that. Tell me when's a Kickstarter launch where people can find it all that. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's Mayan curse and it's launching on Kickstarter on October 24th. And it's a game where you're kind of like Indiana Jones type of a character uh, running into uh, an area, trying to gain knowledge of this ancient city in the distance. And you have to cross all these puzzly paths and you have to slide slabs and go across the matching symbols to try to get as far as you can and gain as much knowledge while all these other explorers are trying to do the same thing. But at some point, you're going to trigger some boulders that are going to be rolling back towards the entrance. And at that point, you have to start making that decision. Do I want to keep going and be a little greedy and try to get a little too much? Or am I going to try to escape and, and get out while I still can? And if you don't get out before all the boulders get there, you're closed off and you can't even win the game. So it's uh, it's a bit of a race, some press your luck, and a lot of uh, a lot of puzzliness as well. Very cool. And it's called Mayan Curse? That's right. Awesome. Well, Joe, I hope it does really, really well. And uh, man, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Gabe. It's always a pleasure talking to you.